Hello, and welcome to episode one of the Sore Hands Club podcast. I'm your host, Jared Carnes, and today I bring you a conversation with Alan Dumond of Origins Handmade. Alan's a brilliant jeweler and a wonderful friend. We speak on the unique size constraints of working at Bella in Asheville, North Carolina. We'll nerd out over Alan's jewelry and learn about how a more equitable maker economy could look. Before we begin, I must say that I'm grateful that my friends at Suva Lapidary have sponsored this episode of the Sore Hands Club podcast. I've been a customer for several years, and my guest Alan has done business with them as well. They've always been super helpful when I have questions, and they've got a fantastic selection of diamond grinding wheels, resin diamond polishing wheels, and other consumables needed to polish stone and ceramic. Find them at suvalapidary.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Suva Lapidary. Alan Dumont, thank you for joining me on the Sore Hands Club. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Alan and I are good friends. We talk quite often. We send each other photos of our dogs almost daily. So we have some familiarity. This is going to be a good time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we need to ride bikes together again soon. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, dude. Let's talk about some jewelry. Give us a little rundown of your jewelry experience, kind of where you started, where you came from, and then what you're doing today. It was kind of a weird sideways path getting to where I am now. My first body jewelry that I really started making was out of bamboo. It was just easy to do. There was a patch of it growing <laughs> behind a pizza place that was on my bike ride home from work. So I would just cut it down from there and dry it in my oven at home. For sure. Were you doing any burning on the faces or anything? Yeah, which was like, I think I did that with a nail that I was heating up on my stove at the time. Yeah, it was fun though. And then that turned into, it looked similar enough to wood plugs that I thought maybe I could try that. I started turning wood plugs on a lathe and I was doing that in the bedroom of a house I shared with four people. I had a bandsaw and a lathe and a belt sander, who knows what else in my bedroom like right beside sawdust everywhere oh my gosh yeah it was i think my belt sander was at the foot of my bed it was very silly but yeah then i did wood plugs for a long time and my partner at the time who i worked with we made wood plugs together and had a little jewelry company and then we both started carving stone once you start making cabochons at some point you get bored of just the pre-made cabochon sizes and shapes available and start doing some metal smithing that turned into me doing a lot of metal smithing and really liking it. Here I am, mostly just doing metal smithing now. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how as a lapidarist, often our work ends up most marketable if we uh -huh, wrap yeah. it in something else. Yeah, it's like a really good frame on a photo. Yeah, exactly. I've never been a huge fan of metal work myself, so it was kind of a necessary evil. You know, I have all of these great rocks and now I need to make them wearable. So you spend a lot of time making tiny things in a little tiny workshop, and you've been living in a tiny bus for, I guess, going on a year now. It's been a minute, yeah. Give us a little rundown of your tiny life of big freedom. Moved into this little school bus to solve roommate and my dogs don't get along situation. Ended up just really loving living in the bus, and it's been pretty awesome. So the, the goal is to find land and either build a little cabin to make jewelry in on the land or... Something similar to that is, you know, I'm still kind of like not real sure where it's heading, but 
uh, yeah, definitely love living in the bus and kind of traveling around and getting to spend time other places. Uh, I run a lot of trail races and mountain bike and stuff. So it's nice to have home be right at the trailhead. Oh yeah. A little base camp. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your studio at Bella. It's a unique situation where you've got the ability to produce jewelry right there in Empiric Studio. And both the studio and your workshop are really quite small <laughs> in comparison to a lot of other studios I've been to. And I'm sure that presents some unique constraints and also just makes for some very cool challenges to work through. It's it's just the two of us, me and Nick work there. And it it really is like kind of a perfect space for us. It's it's really nice getting to work with somebody that like you're also really good friends with and enjoy being around, especially when you work in our shop is a 200 square foot space, which is piercing room, lobby, uh, bathroom and our jewelry room. So it is really small. Our jewelry room is pretty much a closet. We're actually I think Nick is talking about putting a second <laughs> jeweler's bench in there, which would be really fun. Actually, I think we, I think we actually can pull it off. It's a good thing you <laughs> like each other. It's a pretty great little space, especially in a COVID world now where I just have one client at a time. It's pretty great to just have like this kind of small space where we can hang out, do a piercing and, you know, make them some jewelry and, and just have that kind of experience. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. And you actually have a little window through into the, yeah, I guess, the showroom uh, like area. Yeah, the jewelry room and the piercing room are separated by a little drive through window which is kind of a throwback to our building before we moved into it was originally a parking lot where food trucks would park and they would serve beer and hot dogs out of our space. <laughs> and it was like a little patio. You could eat your food truck food on and get a beer out of our building. So they had a little drive through window. And I kind of love that we were able to like keep a little bit of history of that building. You know, it's not ancient history or anything, but I still think it's cool that we have this little window that used to be on the front of the shop. We moved to the inside of the shop and made it into this really functional thing where if we're doing something loud and there's clients in the lobby, we can close this window. And if not, we can leave it open and talk to people while we work. And it's been pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. As somebody who's been there and seen it, uh, it's super unique. And the ability to just stand on the other side of it and, and watch somebody apply some texture or solder something together that's pretty dope that's an experience you don't normally get when you yeah walk into a it's fun studio. i don't i don't know if it's still a thing but i remember in the 80s as a kid going to like i think it was pizza hut and you could like watch it make your pizza through the window <laughs> it always always kind of reminds <laughs> me of like me being like six years old staring at the dude making my pizza <laughs> <laughs> oh man so your work has a really unique aesthetic it's something that i really enjoy um and that i'm very drawn to because i think it's such large contrast to my own work I consider your work to be very organic and raw and it's so far from what comes out of my hands naturally that I've always really admired what I feel is the spontaneity. Talk to us a little bit about your mood when you're working and the shapes that you like to use and the textures that you like to apply. I spend a lot of time outdoors and I like organic, natural stuff. I like textures. I like textures against really polished stuff. I like that contrast, bright colors next to muted colors, like anything, anything that's kind of nature inspired, I'm pretty into. Also, there's also kind of a realistic reality to it that like i'm probably just not that great at setting cabochons or prong settings or whatever so the texture is kind of a byproduct of like yeah i mean i could have <laughs> made this bezel perfect maybe if i tried really hard but it looks cool this way and also i don't know like i'm i'm just better at it i 
I'm not a precision kind of person. I'm very much a like scribbly, right. like, oh, this looks cool. Like, let's keep doing this kind of person. Stuff usually starts with kind of a vague idea and then just ends <laughs> up wherever it ends up. We had a conversation recently about casting and I had mentioned that I thought it was really interesting in a previous podcast that you had spoken on, Real Talk, a piercing podcast. You guys had a conversation about different production processes. And one of the things that came up was casting and how it's generally used to make multiple copies of something, you know, which is fine. But you stated that it was something that you weren't really into. You were big into the handmade, you know, one customer, one piece at a time. And then you joined the Sore Hands Club. Was it a bike accident? Yes, it was. Two in a, two in a row. <laughs> yeah, so you banged up <laughs> yeah, your hand pretty I, good. I broke a hand in March, and then a month later, well, I broke my broke slash dislocated. Um, really just kind of made a mess out of one of my thumbs. And then crashed again a month later and broke a collarbone on the same side and dislocated my shoulder. So that arm was kind of out of commission for a couple months. <laughs> uh it was, yeah. During the recovery from that accident, you started working in wax. Yeah, when I first got back to the bench, typical fabrication stuff and bending metal and some of the stuff that took a lot of hand strength just wasn't really doable for me at first. So I started doing stuff in wax, which I'd been experimenting a little with before and hadn't really had a lot of time to dedicate to. So in a way, the, you know, breaking my hand was a good time to like learn a new thing and spend that time learning. Um, it would have been tight to learn without breaking my hand. And, you know, <laughs> Nick had to do a lot of piercings while my hand was broken. <laughs> yeah, it was cool to, to be able to like do that and start to figure out ways to make jewelry that didn't require so much hand strength and, and learn some new stuff. Um, and it also like ended up giving kind of a different aesthetic to some of the stuff that now I'm using even more and, and like kind of choosing that sometimes. But yeah, rather than doing like one piece and then reproducing it in wax and casting, uh, I'm just doing hand carved wax stuff, either that fits around a stone specifically, or maybe has a pattern or I've been trying to carve stuff that looks like nature stuff and, and having fun with that kind of thing and doing a lot of texture in the wax. Yeah, it's been cool to explore a different way of making jewelry. Yeah, I've been really into the uh, settings that I believe you're building up from wax. They They have a very... I don't want to say grown look. It's not really weathered either. There's something organic about them that makes me feel like it was sitting somewhere yeah, and yeah. just happened. I really love the look of a lot of the electroplated jewelry I've seen. And there's not really a great way to do electroplating in the small scale I work in or for body jewelry or in solid gold. I mean, there's, there's, I believe, I don't know a ton about electroplating. I think there are some workarounds for all of those things, but I think realistically to do that scale and to kind of reproduce that aesthetic to it, where it just looks like the metal kind of grew onto the stone. The way I've been doing it is to just mm. melt wax onto the stone and then freeze it and really carefully remove the stone and then cast it and then set the stone back in. And that's been, that's been a fun process to try to figure out oh i bet yeah that's very cool played around a little bit with casting stones in place too setting the stone itself in the wax and then casting it with the stone still there tell us about the limitations of that incredibly difficult the results are super inconsistent you get partial fills in your casts a lot where like your whatever you made in wax doesn't completely fill and so you've got a, just the whole side of a piece missing or whatever sometimes it casts clean but the stone just isn't in it still 
Sometimes it casts and the stone shatters or cracks. It's really inconsistent. So I love the aesthetic, um, but it does like the pieces that come out are like pretty rare. So it's definitely a, it's a, it's a very time intensive process because so many pieces just get ruined when you do it. Yeah. When you have a loss rate like that, I personally don't get excited. To yeah, a chance to uh, I get excited about when one does come out. It's really cool, um, but the it it takes some patience. And for me, it means often when I cast, there's like one or two of those pieces, and then a few that I know are going to come out consistently clean. So they're kind of a like, well, I'll throw this on on the side. Just to, you know, it'd be cool if it worked. Uh, I've I've figured some tips and tricks out here and there, and have gotten gotcha. more and more consistent with it, and I'm starting to really enjoy it. When it does come out, it's so cool. Hell yeah! Uh, let's let's talk about a little bit of your work more specifically. One of the things that is very prevalent in your aesthetic is faceted looking, naturally faceted looking stones, not stuff that's been carved to be shiny, but things that look like the ends of quartz points or pieces of amethyst etc tell me a little bit about that uh, aesthetic i kind of just love keeping that natural shape as much as possible and especially stones that like have a naturally forming crystal shape to it sometimes i do have to alter the shape a little bit to make it fit in the setting so if a quartz point has a side that cuts under uh you know it won't hold in a bezel that way so sometimes i have to lower Mm -hmm. it or i have to like round out a corner or something but to me that's part of the fun too because that makes it this thing that would only be possible with a mix of metal smithing skills and lapidary skills. And so for me, it's fun to be able to take those two parts and put them together and make this unique thing. But yeah, I just, I kind of like, I love seeing those shapes, like long tourmaline spears when you see them form in nature. Like I just, I kind of love just the way they form and look naturally and try to preserve it as much as I can. Yeah. I'm super into that. And I think that your metalworking aesthetic is a really fantastic compliment to that stone style. I think you you really nailed it all around. One of the other things that I really like from you is your, I hesitate to call them channel set because there's not really a channel, but your crimp settings of tiny little natural stones, little chunks of labradorite and opal in your seam rings and Um, clickers. I think we've talked about those before. I actually just recently did a little photo video set on kind of how I do them. So I'll post that process soon, hopefully. Yeah, let me know and I'll link it in the show notes. Those are a total pain. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> as you as you like tighten the, the bezel down around one stone, the stone behind it is kind of pulled up and loosened. So you kind of have to set them. I start on one side and work my way across one stone at a time and get them set in kind of loose, but in place and then sort of just work back and forth across the whole piece and slowly tighten it down until everything is not moving. So it's they're a, a slow process to do those, um, but they're really fun. I have in the past, I've done a few in softer stones like moonstones and opals. And that was a little bit of a nightmare because they're so easy to break. And that setting style is just wants to break stones. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, you're just kind of taking them all and pushing them together and hoping they play nice. Pretty much. Yeah. Like hoping that there's not a crack you didn't see in one somewhere that it just explodes. Yeah, that's always fun. <laughs> Well, they look fantastic. Thank you for making them. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Let's talk about what you're wearing or what you what you would generally wear. Give me a rundown of what's in your face. Yeah, which is funny because I'm about to leave to go backpacking for a couple of days. And it's actually something I talk to my clients about, about how much I love being like out in the woods and dirty and haven't showered, but I still have like <laughs> a face full of really cool jewelry and look good. 
<laughs> but yeah, I have in my upper like big flats, I have some pieces that the folks over at Metal and Silver made. Seth and Monique are so good. Uh, the new stuff they're doing is awesome. Yeah, I love their work. And then I have some conch eyelets that I made myself, but I have some from you on the oh, way. <laughs> um, so yeah, pretty soon I'll have some yeah, crystal, and porcelain. crystal glazed front conch plugs. Yeah, cannot wait. Should be a little warmer in the wintertime oh, than sure. silver eyelets that I'm wearing. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, my daily go-to big plugs are some rain copper death bowls that some really good friends of mine pitched in and got me for my birthday about God, <laughs> probably 15 years ago and they have never been cleaned or polished since and they look really haggard and it's perfect and then i'm wearing some stuff that my friend jamie made folks would remember jamie sure. from integrity body jewelry but yeah incredible jeweler that does titanium stuff and i've got a bunch of septum jewelry that i'm wearing that my coworker nick made Nick Fox makes some pretty incredible jewelry. Does he have a little brand or is he going by name alone? For now, at least, he is Nick Fox Piercing and it's piercing and jewelry and he's just a guy that makes jewelry. But I don't know if that that may change at some point in the future. I don't know what his plans are. Do you have a favorite piece that you have made? Favorite piece that I have made. I think we've talked about this one before because it was a whole process. But I did a, a meteorite with a diamond set in the meteorite which was like a (laughs) very multi-layered. I had to cut the meteorite, uh, make a setting for the diamond, and then do a piece of tubing on the back of the setting and then drill a hole in the meteorite so that I could cold rivet the diamond setting to the meteorite and then set the diamond on top of it and then set that whole thing in a bezel setting for a threaded end. So that was a a really fun, (laughs) I don't know why, I just, I think I had seen some other like stone in a stone things. And and I'd seen like the stuff that you've done in the past with like hardware settings and librettes and things like that, that I was like, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. like I could do that in a really, really small scale with a meteorite. (laughs) Yeah, you did. It was amazing. I'd like to point out that Alan did it the hard way and riveted the tiny faceted stones tube setting into the meteorite itself, which yeah, that was... is just asking for breakage, but it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Generally, this would be done by probably soldering that tube setting to the underlying bezel, drilling a hole in the meteorite and just dropping it all on top. But I really love the way that you created a unique individual stone and then set that. Yeah, I kind of wanted the stone to be like one piece and that way if it ever wanted to be removed from that setting and put in a ring or whatever, it could always be like its own thing. It's such a good call. Do you have a favorite piece from another maker or something that you've seen recently that uh, that did it for you? Yes, so many. Um, but uh, one <laughs> of my highlights, I love seeing the stuff that Dallin Hargrave carves. His stuff at Tucson every year in person is incredible it's so good seeing it in photos and then seeing it in person is like unreal tell us what dallin does. he's a he's a stone carver who does fantasy carved stuff um some of it is like really intricate pattern work and mosaics and he's done some of my favorite pieces he's done are like have images of people looking in mirrors and the mirror is polished stone and it's like got their reflection in an etched stone into the polish it's like unbelievable so it looks like there's someone inside the stone looking into a mirror that you can see their reflection in the mirror it's his work is 
pretty next level and yeah seeing the photos of it it's similar to like a really good overlook on a mountaintop where it's like the photo is beautiful but it's nothing like the real thing yeah it's just not it can't possibly compare i saw a piece that he did recently i think it was a huge amethyst with flower like a vase of flowers and floral carpet yes, around yeah. the outside just <laughs> unreal i looked at that and was like okay i'm just gonna you know lock the door of my workshop and go <laughs> yeah that's right so one of the things i've always really admired about you and the way you work the way you interface with your customers and other makers is your your transparency you're sharing both in terms of sort of history of production processes and methods to your customers, as well as being completely transparent with other makers in troubleshooting, uh, training, teaching, etc. Why is this so important to you? Even, I mean, the funny thing is like, I th- feel like even if it was a bad business practice, it would still ethically be kind of aligned with how I feel about stuff and that I don't know. I just feel like making jewelry or piercing or anything is, is for all of us. Like those are things that like creating things and having these experiences make us all better people and trying to hoard that for one person just rubs me the wrong way and isn't anything I ever want to feel like that I own. And, and it's up to me to grant someone else access to, to me, I feel like that stuff is just no, doesn't belong to anyone, let alone me. And the funny thing is, though, like, despite those ethics, it's also just beneficial. Uh, the more knowledge I share with people, the more jewelers I get to know, the more that other jewelers share info with me. Same with piercing. Like, it's the once that that like walls are down and the gatekeeping stops, like everybody gets to help everyone else get better. And it makes it reflects in like the excitement of what we're doing and and the people that appreciate our stuff like. I feel like can see that and appreciate it even more because it's it's all done like you know in a really like you can tell when somebody's excited about what they're doing and happy doing what they do and i think the whole thing just kind of elevates everyone and yeah i probably sound like a super hippie right now but it is what it is (laughs) (laughs) i think all of that was really interesting and i follow a similar mindset to you nowadays in the past i had a very traditional business capitalistic uh, trade secrets sort of attitude to sharing information with other makers. Did you ever have a similar mindset and why did it change? Yeah, definitely. And I don't, I, I really don't know when I think back on it, like if my mindset was that way or if it was just the norm so much that I just did it without questioning. Uh, but especially in the piercing industry, mm-hmm. When I started piercing, it was very taboo to talk about technique stuff. I think APP conference and some of the stuff that went down on BME was maybe like where techniques started to get shared more. But I know, especially in the area I lived in, you did not talk with other piercers. You didn't network with other piercers. Like that was kind of taboo. And even, I mean, we had a a piercer do a guest spot at our shop that would not allow me to watch because I would see his like secret ways of doing things. And that was like not that uncommon back then. I feel like it was a, a lot more gatekeepy and, and uh, yeah, I think I bought into that a little bit too, kind of without question it, that, that I, I did a little bit of that too. It's fascinating to me that people were keeping movements of hands. <laughs> right. Which also like, I feel like 
I don't know, once you find out what the secret is, it's usually whack. It's usually like you, you <laughs> had to keep that a secret because, you know, either, either it's the only, you know, it's the one, like you're like a one trick pony and it was a secret because if anybody saw it, they would immediately be able to do the thing you're doing and you want to protect that in some sort of scarcity culture. If other people know how to do my thing, I won't be, I won't have value kind of way. Or it's just, you know, somebody that knows that their secret is, should stay a secret because it's not great. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> so you just mentioned a, a really interesting phrase, and I think we can tie some topics here together. So you said scarcity culture, and we have had quite a few conversations about our place as makers in society, our feelings about being a maker and how we interact with the larger economy. Let's talk a little about your transparency and uh, willingness to share and how important that is for our space as makers, both now and in the future. Full disclosure, and they're not words that I'm scared of, but for the sake of this conversation, I'll just put it right out the front of the gate that I am an anarchist and I consider myself an anti-capitalist. Navigating, wanting to dismantle capitalist and hierarchical systems while also needing to provide a living for myself as a piercer and a jeweler can be a weird land to tread. So there's a lot of trial and error and there's a lot of experimentation and, and a lot of feelings. <laughs> um, yeah, I think <laughs> in, information sharing is a big part of that and sort of like empowering people to, you know, especially I think with jewelry in the piercing industry, like teaching someone to make jewelry, like empowers them as a piercer to, Maybe they're in an area where they don't have access to jewelry. Maybe they're at a newer shop that doesn't have a, a budget to afford it, but they can afford to make it themselves. Um, it, it gives somebody a second skill set that makes them more marketable as a, as a piercer. It potentially helps to level out some power imbalances. If, if they bring so much to the table, they're not at risk of being taken advantage of by a shop owner like many young folks in the industry are because they don't have... You know, it's a job that a lot of people want. So at times it can be easy to take advantage of someone because, you know, if you terminate their position, like they don't get to do the thing they love anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they know that they kind of have to do whatever and, and learning to make jewelry or learning to be a better piercer and sharing that knowledge more freely, like in a lot of ways levels that playing field and empowers people to not be able to be taken advantage of in a, in an industry that doesn't have any sort of safety networks. You know, there's no union. Most people are paid, you know, under the table or 1099 or whatever that looks like. That's changed a lot in the industry over the years, but it's still pretty common. And I think, you know, those of us that have skill sets, whether it's making jewelry or piercing skills that we have, that we can help other folks out, like it will benefit us to help them and it will benefit them to, to be in a better place. I definitely agree. And I'm, I'm with you on this, let's talk about expansion and growth under this model. Uh, this is something we discussed recently, and I was really fascinated by the way that you think about distributing demand for a product. This is a way I can navigate things because I have the privilege of what I make being something I can make start to finish by myself. There's not a part of the process that I need someone else to do. There's not anything in this process that I can't do. And I also have, you know, a piercing career and jewelry. So it's also something that if I don't have the time to do it or the energy to do it, it's okay. So this, I feel like scales up differently 
in a larger business with multiple people. But for me as a jeweler and as a bench jeweler um, or as a piercer, to me, the idea of me ever having an employee as a jeweler, just as an ethical kind of non-hierarchical anarchist principled idealist person, the idea of someone making what I could be making so that I don't have to, and then they pay me money is absolutely bananas. <laughs> um, so <laughs> the idea of me, like, I just, there's no way I would be able to stomach profiting off of someone else's labor. For me, the alternative model to that is that if I can teach other people how to make jewelry and other people are established, or maybe I didn't even teach them, maybe they're already making jewelry in our industry or could learn how to make body jewelry if they're making something else. And to me, the ethical model there is that rather than I would hire one of these people, like if I can help them and, you know, hey, there's more demand than I can keep up with, rather than hire you, I send you clients that I think are a really good fit for you with their jewelry ideas. And now you get to do that on your own as your own person, rather than the alternative where I would hire you, you'd be making the exact same thing, but I would make, you know, 50% of your profits because I, I did it first. I don't even know why, you know, like that's where that system <laughs> completely fails to make sense to me is like, Oh, because I was here for, it's like some sort of weird arbitrary, you know, whatever. So for me, it makes a lot more sense to just help someone get started up so that when the demand is too large to keep up with, you just don't have to, you can keep up with what you are capable of and you can send work to people that need more work. But we are, we're taught that the, a successful business or a successful career is one that has infinite growth. Like we're not taught that at some point when you make enough, it's okay to make enough and then enjoy other things in your life. And it, it's almost like you're a failure if you turn down work that you could be doing. And in my opinion, it's the opposite. It's like, no, I've, I've done really well and I feel like really happy with where I'm at in my career and I make a really, I'm able to support myself and I'm very happy where I'm at. And so I can share that with other people rather than me have excess and someone else have nothing. Like that's kind of where my mindset is. I think this mindset also has the huge benefit of uh, building a much more diverse and resilient industry. Yes, we definitely. get more makers, we get makers from more backgrounds, we get more techniques, we get different perspectives on how to use materials. Yes, definitely. You know, and there's something that we're seeing in piercing right now, which is where there's a huge monoculture in the jewelry market and piercers are mm -hmm. suffering. You know, people are having to wait a really long time for work. Um, just, you know, stuff you need to do piercings, yeah. basics, the stuff that your studio rolls in and out all day long. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, having more makers and having piercers even being able to make those items for themselves is going to alleviate some of the issues that we're facing with these jewelry monocultures that we all, to some extent, have helped create. And I, I to me, I think the sustainable model of eliminating some of those problems is to to spread that workload across the industry. So the idea to me of a, a big busy shop having a bench jeweler in-house that can do basic repairs and make basic shop jewelry even even if they're not a create you know this may not be their art this may not be their creative outlet but the idea of a busy shop having a bench jeweler just makes sense at this point in the industry because it cuts down your wait times it it gives you the ability to make custom pieces that if you need something to 
specifically fit for a client and it yeah it just it creates a situation where the the shops that don't have the ability to do that or don't have a bench jeweler you know aren't clogging up the system of the jewelers that are available in our industry to make their jewelry like if if they're not making everything for everyone then they will be able to keep up with the people that can't or don't have a jeweler in their studio um but i also think it's a pretty dangerous idea because it does like it spreads the workload across a whole lot of people but it also creates a whole lot of autonomy for those people and it creates a situation where those people aren't employees they're autonomous people to to leave your shop and go to another shop if you're not be treating them well uh it's it's a scary idea for the the folks in charge <laughs> um, oh yeah i mean as someone who's who's been in charge in the past yeah. you know my former self would be shaking in my socks right now yeah and to me that's what's exciting about it is like putting the power back in the hands of people that like <laughs> historically have not had it in this industry you know seeing seeing people that come into the piercing industry and, and i feel like i've seen this a few times and i'm seeing it more and more but people that are coming into the piercing industry with six months of piercing experience under their belt and a degree in metal smithing from somewhere and like their work is incredible <laughs> both piercing and jewelry <laughs> and like seeing that in this industry makes me so happy because it's previously the way to establish yourself was yes being a good piercer but without time it was almost useless you could be the best piercer in the world and if you didn't have you know five years or ten years or you didn't have bragging rights of how long you'd been doing it no one cared and and there was like a power balance to that that was really problematic and to me seeing folks that can be brand new and i'm not saying this in a derogatory way but people that i've never even heard of prior that i meet and i'm like oh my god you're an amazing piercer and jeweler and i had no idea who you even were and (laughs) and you've been in this industry for 10 seconds and you could walk into any shop in the world and they would be lucky to have you like to me that's such a cool thing to see and I think that's what we get when we spread that information more free is we don't get, well, everybody's kind of pretty good. And we just kind of base who's the best on how long they've been doing it, <laughs> like, which was a weird system. Sure. Well, and you end up with a consensus on technique, you know, when, when lots of people are doing the same things, it's going to evolve For sure. more quickly. You know, the, it's been my mindset that innovation is always coming from the little yeah. guy. Yeah. It's rare that, um, you know, something truly innovative comes from the the other end of the market which is another thing i think is a huge benefit of teaching because it benefits those of us that are like you're never in a position of teaching or learning you're always doing both and from my experience the the amount of times i've shown somebody a little jewelry thing or something i've been like cool yeah so this is how you do this and they're like well why don't you do it this way and i'm like why don't i do it that way yeah it's like you're like oh Okay. Yeah. And I've learned so much from, from people that like have never made jewelry or have never done a piercing. Like sometimes a client of mine will, will see the way their piercing was done or their friend watching will make a comment that I'll be like, that's a change I need to make. I'm like, thank you. I just learned a thing from somebody that's not even in this industry. And like, I think that's so exciting too, especially with the younger folks. Like you said, they have a fresh perspective that I really think all of us old people should be paying attention to. (laughs) Just, I was just going to say that the the realization that you just talked about having in terms of input from a client or another jeweler, it takes a lot of vulnerability and a couple of notches down on the ego post 
to be able to look at the things that you're doing and be receptive to the things that other people say about it. Yeah. That's something that I don't think has been very common in the industry until sort of the later part of both of our careers, but I'm liking where it's at. Yeah, I agree. And I will say that like, that has been a struggle and it has been, and it's something I feel like is a constant project for me of like, you know, keeping myself in check and staying humble and like, or trying to, I think that it's a process. <laughs> um, oh, but, uh, but I will say that the, the harder I work on that and the longer I, I continue to pursue that, the happier I am, the better I treat the people around me, like the better my life has been. And it's so cool. I definitely agree. I think that that is how business should work. And I think you're on the right track. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's, it is funny to me that the, the ethical side of it and then just the actual business, like, does it work in practice side of it? My answer is from my experience. Yeah. Like if you just kind of follow your heart and do the ethical thing, like you'll make it. <laughs> like It's, it's putting people first. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Alan, thank you so much for joining me today. I love this conversation. I'm super excited to share it with our listeners. Yeah. Could you give me a rundown of how folks can get in touch with you? So you can reach me. I work at Bella Piercing in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, and our you can book appointments or see what our shop's about at bellapiercing.com. Um, and I work there with Nick Fox, who you can find on Instagram with his jewelry as Nick Fox Piercing, Piercing and Jewelry. And then our shop's Instagram is Bella Piercing on Instagram. And you can see my work at Origins Handmade on Instagram or OriginsHandmade.net on the internet. <laughs> All right, Alan. Thank you very much for joining us today. And I'm sure we'll talk soon. Sounds good. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me for this first episode of the Sore Hands Club podcast. I appreciate all of you, and I'm looking forward to bringing you so many more fantastic conversations with makers in our industry. If you'd like to support the continued growth of this project, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Club. Join me next month for episode two featuring Trevor Thomas of Black Lily Jewelry, one of the very few black-owned body jewelry companies in our industry. I look forward to bringing you that conversation. Until then, take care.